Um, so today, I'm uh, going to be talking about faith and hope, and uh, specifically how um, our hope is strengthened when we hit a rough patch and persevere through it. And I've been given a, a number of texts to use this morning, um, Luke 1, 38, Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, which is the birth of Christ. And then Romans 5, 1 through 5, and I'm going to be uh, spending the, the bulk of my time in the book of Romans this morning. Um, so before we, before we begin, let me pray as well over us. Uh, Lord, stretch out your hand. over a Daniel Baptist church. Heal the sick. Seek the lost. Rebuke the hard-hearted. Comfort the broken-hearted. And Lord Jesus, have mercy on us because we are sinners. Redeemed by your love. Amen. So in Luke chapter 1, verse 38, that's Mary. She's been visited by Gabriel. She's been told she will be the mother of the Messiah. And she accepts what she's been told, though she is a virgin. And then Luke... Chapter 2, we read his account of the birth of Jesus at Bethlehem. So I'm looking at Luke chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading at verse 1 down through verse 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them at the inn. Now, I really love the way P.K. Chesterton treats this story in his The Everlasting Man. He has a chapter and it's called The God in the Cave. And if you're wondering, what does cave mean? Well, there's an ancient Christian tradition stretching back a long ways, that Jesus was basically born in what we would call a glorified cave or a hollowed-out rock. And in in fact, if you've seen the Nativity Story, that movie, you know what I'm talking about? They they play on that tradition. I mean, that's that's kind of where he's born. And so instead of a a cave man, you've got a cave God. And instead of heaven being over earth, earth is over heaven. And you have all of these... Um, these meanings of extremes that inflame the imagination. You know, you have divinity 
and infancy. You have the Son of the Most High God being born in the humblest of possible circumstances. And Chesterton points out this one for all ended the debate about whether all human life has intrinsic value and worth. It doesn't depend on where you're born or where you come from. The Son of the Most High God had the humblest of births and the humblest of places. And so we can sure that, that we all share that same intrinsic value and worth. And so Jesus, He grows up, He does ministry, He does the work that God sent Him to do. And then He was exalted to the right hand of God the Father. And His church is starting and picking up steam. And uh, there's a man who does not like it. And his name is Saul. Saul, and he's from Tarsus. And he starts persecuting the church of Jesus Christ. Now, Abraham Lincoln once said, I think it was Abraham Lincoln, uh, the best way to destroy your enemy is to make him your friend. And so Jesus decided that the best way to destroy Saul the Pharisee was to turn him into Paul the Evangelist. <laughs> and uh, that's what he did. And, and uh, you know, arguably the greatest evangelist of, of all time. All right, so this is his letter he wrote to some Christians in Rome. We're going to read the first five chapters here, beginning with verse 1 in chapter 5. He writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him... We also, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who He has given us. So when Paul starts with, therefore we have been justified by faith, he's summing up what he's written in chapters 1 through 4. <laughs> and so for the next two and a half hours, we're going to be looking at chapters 1 through 4. No, don't get excited. Don't get excited. <laughs> uh, I can't go. I've, I've never preached anywhere close to that long. Um, but I, I do want to look at the end of chapter 4 where Paul gives us a picture of a man of faith a man of justifying for Abraham. Let's go to chapter 4, and I'll begin reading from verse 16, all right? That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, he gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief 
um, made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but also for, um, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And so, this, this is a really interesting story because Abraham's uh, circumstances, none of his circumstances were encouraging him to accept what God had told him. And, and Paul is not exactly delicate in the way that he talks about this. He's like, yeah, Abraham was pretty much dead. He was this guy who had no business being alive. Uh, he's 100 years old. And his wife's not that far behind him. She's nine. He has never had children. Wasn't able to have children even when she was younger. And Abraham's faith, instead of weakening because of those circumstances, says, Paul writes, that he grew strong in his faith. And that tells us what his view of God is. Right? Abraham thinks God is able. And so he took God at his word. And it was accredited to him as righteousness. So let me ask you a different question. Suppose I told you this morning, suppose you were new here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. And I, I pulled you aside and I said, welcome to Emmanuel Baptist Church. Did you know that today was my birthday? You know, you'd think, oh, well, that's nice. Congratulations. Happy birthday. Thank you. And let's say that you come back the next week and I, I, I pull you aside again and I said, do you know what? Today is also my birthday. And at that point, you might be thinking, huh, I don't know if I want to talk to you anymore. And... I'd like to ask a question about Abraham. When was Abraham justified? Now, we look at Romans chapter 4. Paul says this is when Abraham was justified, when God promised Abraham that he would father many nations. Abraham believed God, and he was justified. Go over to the book of James. The book of James chapter 2. And I'm going to read verse 21. This is what James writes. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when, there's the key word there, when, he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now, for many, many years, theologians have seen the tension between these two texts. It's not a surprise, all right? And the way that it's usually reconciled is by saying, well, look, if you sincerely have faith, your faith is going to impact the way you live, Right? And this was certainly true of Abraham. When we look at Abraham as a man of faith, you know, Abraham left everything he knew, not knowing where he was going. He, he submitted to God by faith. Abraham believed the promise that God made to him. And Abraham obeyed when God tested him and asked him to offer his son Isaac on the altar. And we can see the same thing in the Apostle Paul's life. Faith had a huge impact on Paul. In Galatians chapter 2, I think it's verse 18 or around that area, right? Paul writes, through the law, I died to the law 
so that I might live unto God. Now notice he didn't say through the law I died to the law so that I might live lawless life. He died to the law so that he could live unto God. And then right after that he says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So we see that Paul's faith, it didn't just sort of change his habits on the weekend. It radically redefined who he was. Now, Jesus said, if you save your life, this is Matthew chapter 16, verse 25. Whoever saves their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for me will save it. Now, Abraham took God at his word, right? That was his faith, right? So now, am I going to take Jesus at his word? Am I going to believe him or not? Now, see, uh, I, when I was preaching from John chapter 7, this was our last meeting at the park, I pointed out that people who have made a shipwreck of their lives have a lot easier time accepting the gospel. They say, here, Jesus, take the keys. I tried to drive and the car exploded. You're the boss. Take it. It's the high-functioning sinners that have a little bit of trouble here because they want to maintain control. Jesus, can I just, can I trust in you to forgive me of my sins and maintain control and keep my life? (laughs) Yeah, that's not trusting in Jesus. That's trusting in yourself. And that doesn't work. And I know, I know from experience it doesn't work because that's where I was at for many years of my life. That religion sinks. And, and you know what my, my problem was, was that I didn't believe. I didn't believe Jesus when he told me I had to lose my life to save it. I didn't believe that he had a new life to give me that was a lot better than the life I thought I wanted for myself. I didn't have faith. And I, I, I suspect that I'm not the only one who's ever been in that boat. And uh, sometimes people are encouraged to stay there unfortunately, by people who have not entered the kingdom of God and so to keep themselves from feeling bad, they try to prevent others from doing it as well. Um, but, you, but you know what? The, the solution to that problem, and it doesn't matter what kind, of go- what kind of counterfeit gospel you're being preached, all right? Whether you're, preaching a, a counter- whether you're hearing a counterfeit gospel of self-reliance or whether you're hearing a counterfeit gospel of license, Both of those Gospels are telling you the same thing. You can keep your life. You can keep control. And you can't. You've got to believe. And and that's that's the solution. The solution is not work harder, put more self-effort into your Christian faith, or just do whatever you want to do. It's repent and believe. Trust in Jesus. Trust that He will forgive you of all your sins. Trust that He will give you a new life. And don't try to imagine what that life will look like. Like I said last time I preached. That's just trying to have control. Abraham didn't know where he was going. Trust that he will lead you and guide you. And guess what? This is messy. 
Learning, learning to be led by the Lord is messy. You're going to make mistakes all the way to the grave. You're going to make some glorious big mistakes. I'm talking failures. And that's okay. That's all part of the process. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Never. Once you sincerely unite yourself to Christ by faith. And Paul says that when we do that, in spite of all of our faults, all of our failings, all of our weaknesses, God looks down at us and says, justified, not guilty. And I love, it, it, it turns justification on its head, right? Because conventionally, you would think that justification would come at the end. Like, I have to live my life and prove myself, and then God will say whether I'm guilty or not guilty. But Paul took that picture and flipped it on its head and he says, no. For the believer, justification comes at the beginning. It's at the beginning that we're accepted and acquitted by God. And I love what F.F. Bruce says along these lines about the Apostle Paul. Paul's hope before he became a Christian was that by dint of perseverance and observing the law of God, he might at length be pronounced righteous by God when he stood before his judgment seat. But in this way of righteousness, apart from the law, the procedure is reversed. God pronounced believers righteous at the beginning of their course, not at the end of it. If he pronounces them righteous at the beginning of their course, it cannot be on the basis of works which they have not yet done. Now, I, I set all that up because we, we're understanding here now, if you've never done that, today could be Christmas. You don't have to wait till the 25th to put your faith in Jesus. You can have that blessing whenever you want it. And in Romans chapter 5, Paul tells us about certain blessings that are enjoyed by this group of people. We're talking about justified believers. They enjoy certain blessings. Okay, and let's take a look at them. The first one he talks about is peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. And what I've come to understand, if I've been informed correctly, is that peace here actually does not refer to inner peace. Although there are passages in Scripture that deal with our interior peace. But this one right here is interpersonal peace. Okay? So let me, let me explain that like this. So my wife is here with me this morning, and I have peace with my wife. Praise God. I, you know, do I? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I might not after this is over. So... I have peace with her. I don't have any problem with her. She doesn't have any problem with me. There's no friction between us. Now, I might be having a crummy day for other reasons, right? I might be discouraged about something or anxious about something or nervous about something else. I might not feel very good, but I have peace with my wife. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Regardless of how you feel right now, regardless of how good or bad your day is, there is no friction between you and God. There is no hostility. There's not a single ounce of hostility between you and God because you have peace. And by the way, we need to really rejoice in that because that peace did not come cheap. That. That right there is the only reason any of us have peace with God. It was His work. We started the war. We started the war. We opened the door for sin and death to come into the world. The hostility was 100% our responsibility. And it was 100% removed by Jesus and His blood. That did not come cheap. 
and, and we, we praise God. Praise God for His work that He's done on our behalf that we did not deserve at all. But not only do we have peace, He says, now we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And I really like what the scholar Dismu has to say about this passage. He says, it's like we've been transferred from the realm of the law, what I would call the realm of legalism, to the realm of grace, right? So when you're in the realm of the law, everything is very conditional. When I'm in the realm of the law, I have to prove myself worthy of God's love before He will love me. But we are not in that realm. We have been transferred to the realm of grace. And that's where we stand. We have peace with God. God loves us. He doesn't love us any more when we do well. He doesn't love us any less when we do bad. We are standing and have confidence in that grace of God and in that relationship, that access to God that we have through faith. That's where we're standing. There's no pressure. At least not when it comes to judgment. There's no pressure. We've been set free. And then here comes the cream, right here. All these, these, these two blessings, three if we count justification, are leading us into, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. You remember those sobering words? I, I know many do in Romans 3, 23. What did Paul write? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In simple English, that means we are not what we were made to be. God wanted us to be His image bearers. That was our purpose. And we fell short of that. And we had no hope. We had absolutely no hope of regaining it until Christ. And now, through Christ, through faith, in the grace in which we stand, we have once again realized the hope of the glory of God. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote a wonderful little sermon called The Weight of Glory. And actually, that sermon was uh, combined with a number of other essays and sermons he wrote into a book called The Weight of Glory, uh, which I highly recommend. But on this, on this business of the rewards we have to look forward to as believers... He pointed out the New Testament identifies five of these, the, the rewards of our resurrected life. And he, um, he lists them as we, we shall be with Christ, we shall be like Him, we shall have glory, we shall be feasted, and we shall have some sort of official position in the universe. Okay. And what's interesting is Lewis frankly admits that, that these rewards did not have much of an immediate appeal to him especially the hope of glory. And he said when he thought about glory, two ideas came to his head. All right? One was fame, which he thought was wicked. The other one was luminosity, which he found to be a little bit absurd. And when he's talking about fame, he thought, well, fame is a competitive desire, right? Fame is I want to be better known than you so I can feel like I'm more valuable than you. And that obviously is wicked. And then when he's talking about luminosity, he said, well, who wants to be an eternal electric light bulb? But when he started digging deeper into the meaning here of what the biblical authors were actually trying to convey, he saw that he was wrong, okay? 
So, when it comes to recognition, uh, if we were having a parade, right, and some big shot celebrity was coming to town, and, and you're there at the parade. Uh, now, we know as Christians, we're too, you know, we, we don't get wrapped around this kind of vanity. But some people, you know, if, if they were at a parade and there was a big shot celebrity who singled you out in front of the whole crowd, you know, that, that would give your ego a little bump, right? Like, oh, I'm a somebody. He, he pointed to me. All these people saw it. Now, I know that doesn't appeal to you guys, but I mean, okay, let's pretend that we're a little worldly here just for a second. Um, yeah, that would be, that's, that's kind of bad. You know, that's vanity, right? But here's the deal. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the throne room of God, okay? And there you stand before your Maker, and there's millions of angels. And if you looked at any one of these angels, they are more spectacular, beautiful, wise, and perfect than any person you've ever met on the earth. And they are all there, and God is there. And God points down to you and says, Well done, good and faithful servant. That's the hope that we have, church. That's, that's where we're headed. And that's not going to just... Get, I mean, that, that doesn't give your ego a boost. It eradicates the ego. There's no more feelings of inadequacy. There's no more feelings of, I, I'm not worthy. None of that. All of that is erased on that day. It's done. God recognizes me. That's all that matters. And when it comes to this business of luminosity, this business of beauty... You know, when Peter and James and John were, were traveling around with Jesus after his public ministry began, they saw him do some really awesome things, right? They saw him casting out demons um, with, a, with an authority and power that no one else ever had. I mean, I, I'm told that rabbis prior to the time of Jesus would sometimes coax demons out of people, um, whether or not that's, that's true, I haven't researched it. But with Jesus, it didn't, it didn't take any coaxing, you know. When he was preaching that first sermon in Mark chapter 1, and one of the people there manifests, he just says, count! And boom, it's done. And the people are like, okay, this is different. That's, that's pretty cool. Jesus could heal blind people. That was, that's amazing. He could feed thousands of people with almost no food. But during that time, Peter, James, and John, they never said, you know what, it doesn't get any better than this. You know when they did? When, when did Peter say that? It was on the Mount of Transfiguration. When Peter saw the glory of the Son of God unveiled on that mountain. That's when he said, you know what, it doesn't get any better than this. Let's just set up some shelters and some tents because this is it. This is the real deal. And the idea is that, that you know, he, he probably never read Psalm 27 the same way after that. You, you know what I'm talking about? It's Psalm 27, I think it's verse 4. Let me go there real quick to read it with you. Really well-known psalm. Psalm 20, chapter 27, verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, gaze upon the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in His... I bet you Peter said, I get that now. 
I get that. Psalm says, I only want one thing. Just one. Just let me see God. And then I'm satisfied. And people are like, I get that now. I've seen it. And you know what, church? Um, we, need to, we need to be in prayer that God will open up our eyes to that as well. That we, can, that we can earnestly and sincerely say that along with the psalmist. We need to be praying for that desire to be awakened in us. But Paul, having taken us up to heaven, now brings us immediately down to earth. That scoundrel. Talking about the hope of God. And then immediately, what does he do? He starts talking about suffering. And amazingly, just as he said we should rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, now he is saying we should rejoice in our sufferings. And I, I read this uh, passage a while back, and I pointed out that, you know, it, it, um, that while pleasure is opposite of pain, what Paul is teaching us here is that joy is not. Pleasure, can't, pleasure and comfort can't really coexist with pain, but interestingly enough, joy can. If we have the right mindset. Now, I am an, an American, I'm a rich American man. I love comfort. Okay, I like, I like soft couches, I like good food, I like clean water. All that, all that stuff suits me right down to the ground. Okay? But, but the, reality of the, fact, uh, the reality is, if, if I'm living for that stuff, I will never rejoice in my sufferings. If that's, if that's where I'm living, any time suffering comes into my life, it's going to be an irritation. I am not going to be rejoicing in it. And that's the, pro- that's the problem. The problem is um, we want to be comfortable. God wants us to be good. And there's kind of cross purposes there. But if we, if we get on God's team, okay, and one way that we can do this is by remembering this when we're dealing with um, more minor irritations of life, the, the sufferings we have to endure. Um, you know, these COVID restrictions are probably a good example of that for most of us, right? I was with my kids all week long last week, and they got to see how unchristlike their dad can be sometimes. Uh, lucky them. And, and I'm preaching from this text, right? And something, okay, I better, I better figure out how to do, <laughs> I better figure out how to rejoice in this since I'm going to be preaching about this. And, and it's, it's true, it's, it's tough, but we have, to, we have to put ourselves in that mindset, okay? Because if we don't, what happens when the real storms come? I was listening to a podcast earlier this week, too, and where this father was talking about, and this happened years ago, but he's talking about the death of his 18-year-old son. Died in a motorcycle accident. Happened so close to the house, his daughter heard crash. Now, that, that goes beyond just being a little irritated and being a little inconvenienced. That's, God, my heart's been ripped out. I'm bleeding to death. Where are you? And these early Christians, they knew all about that. They knew what it was like to be oppressed and persecuted and killed. And God, where are you? What hope is there in that? And Paul says, hold on a minute. Hold on.
In that manure of suffering, God plants a seed of endurance. And that endurance grows in the character, and the character branches into hope. And the gates of hell will not prevail against that hope. Christ bought His bride with His own blood, and He is not letting her go. That's the hope that we have. It's not directed towards a comfortable life here on this earth. It's directed towards life everlasting in God's kingdom. And that hope that we have will not put us to shame. We might be put to shame in the eyes of the world, but that matters nothing. That matters nothing. And so Paul writes, and hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Merry Christmas, church. We worship a wonderful God who has been very, very generous and merciful to us. Let's pray. Um, Gracious Lord in heaven, Lord Jesus, thank you for your cross. Thank you that we can gather here today, your body, to read your word, to lift up your name, to remember your sacrifice. And we pray, Lord, that you would open up our eyes to the hope of the glory to which you have called us. We pray that in our hearts of heart, in our heart of hearts, we will rejoice in you as the psalmist did. Lord, grant us that desire, intensify, intensify, increase, expand, deepen that desire to dwell in your house, to glorify you and enjoy you forever. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.